There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Rebecca Liu. Today we're talking to writer Julia Bell about social media platforms and the attention economy. Julia has recently published Radical Attention, a book on the battle for attention in the age of distraction. Her essay explores how the internet and smartphones have transformed us as human beings, and the costs that these supposedly free websites have exacted on our lives and minds. In a time of infinite distraction, Julia calls instead for what she calls radical attention, the art of emptying our own chaotic minds to redirect one's focus elsewhere. Thanks so much for joining us, Julia. Um, to start off with, uh, what made you want to write Radical Attention? Um, well, I had an essay that went viral um, a couple of years ago, and it it was a really interesting experience because suddenly I found myself completely and utterly addicted to my phone um, in a way that was actually sort of life-threatening. I'm walking across the crossword looking at it. I'm not paying attention to traffic. Um, I also kind of got massively anxious because I thought I had to respond to everything everybody was saying all at once. You know, it was very pleasing to start with, and then it started to get a bit overwhelming. And then... I think as a consequence of that, I started to realise how much time I was actually spending on social media, just scrolling through information and news, because obviously, you know, your follower count increases, you get more people on Facebook, you see more stuff. So suddenly there was just this acceleration of more, and I was getting very exhausted by it. And then also, I think running alongside that is a lot of political concern about how come Donald Trump, how come Brexit, how did these things happen? How did our body politics suddenly become so poisoned? And I think I feel that, you know, some of the ways in which we're using the internet has, has caused some of these things. So it's a personal problem and a much bigger political issue, I think, too. Mm. And taking a leap back, one of the starting anecdotes in your book go back to the early 1990s in Birmingham, where you're logging on to, your, to the first Mac that you will encounter. And there is a sense of joy and and delight you have there. Tell me about how, throughout the years, your attitude towards technology and social media has shifted from that initial moment. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm part of the generation that remembers growing up without it, which I think, you know, is increasingly perhaps interesting to think about. Um, And I had use of the internet from my early 20s. So a friend had a 
uh, a Mac and I logged on, like I talk about in the book, and I said hello, and somebody said hello back. And I remember screaming, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is going to change everything. And then um, I went to university to do an MA in 95, and I got an email address. And I remember very clearly that the computer lab, it was, it was just, you know, it was academics sort of screwing things together to see what happened. It was, there was a sort of sense of experiment and people were all sort of trying to figure out how it might work. And then I found that it was, it was quite exciting. There were ways of publishing work, disseminating work. You could build a web page, you could swap music, it was Napster. There was all sorts of a sense that it was this exciting new invention that was going to change the way we interacted with each other or the way we shared knowledge with each other maybe. Um, and I think it's really only been in the last kind of 10 years, and I think particularly perhaps in the last six, five or six or seven, maybe, that the whole thing started to feel really strange and unwieldy and caught, and, and it's a monopoly and it's driven by profit and it's not necessarily something that it has any of those kind of exercises. It's scary. It started to become frightening. It flipped. It really, really flipped. And I mean, I can't exactly put a date on it, but I think that it, I would say that it's sort of from kind of 2010 onwards. Yeah, it's it's incredible how quick it's been because I remember even growing up with, with dial-up um, and I would go on a lot of these specific forums about ballet dancing. I was very into ballet, um, you know, online pet games and, and things like that. And I think there was a degree of, oh, we're here for a purpose. So we're sharing things and we're sharing interests in a way that I think now everything feels like it's been captured by these specific sites and people aren't on there with necessarily a shared sense of community. Well, I think the thing that's happened now is that our interactions online are being scrutinized so heavily. So before there was a sense that one really was just peer to peer speaking to somebody else and there wasn't anything else interacting with that. Now everybody's creaming off data from that in, from those interactions all the time in order to sort of, I don't know what, do what with it? I mean, you know, sometimes that's just to sell me some toothpaste, but sometimes that might be also to sell me to voting for somebody that I might not, might not be a good idea or suppressing my vote or, you know, all kinds of other things, telling me that um, QAnon conspiracies or whatever. So you discuss visiting San Francisco in the early 2000s, or in the book you write about returning in 2016. Tell us a little bit about how you saw the city change and what that revealed to you about the tech industry and its values. Yeah, and I think well, I think one of the reasons why I'm interested in this is my sister. Well, she works for Google, so I should make that. I should say that now. <laughs> and we have lots of conversations about this kind of th this kind of topic. And um, she moved out there in 2004, so I went out there pretty much every year for a period of over 10 years. Um, and it was really interesting to watch really from a kind of, I suppose, tourist point of view, although I did spend um, about six months out there in 2007, how accelerated everything got. The money, the, the, the just the sheer amount of cash that Google and Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft and Apple generated over, it was, it was hyper, it was, it was so fast. Um, and I think the city just became a sort of dorm room for Google campus and Apple campus, real estate prices went ridiculous, loads of remodeling, the city sort of changed shape, suddenly skyscrapers everywhere. Um, and it was a much more kind of relaxed, sort of hippie, interesting literary place for me. It was somewhere where, you know, the, the beat poets had come out of there, there was Kerouac's bar, there was a, a relationship for me with literature. 
um, and the art scene. And suddenly it was just, it was big tech and it had that sort of, um, again, it, Timothy Morton calls um, technology a sort of hyper object. It's something that's happening to us and it's so big and so fast that it's hard for us to pass it or talk about it in, in a simple way. And I got, just got that feeling of vertigo, I think, when I, when I went back, particularly in um, 2016, I just thought, wow, this city's really changed. Thinking about San Francisco particularly, so many of these companies have these grand democratic ideals, but you see what they've done to these neighborhoods and it's completely the opposite of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've re we've really got to drill back to the, to the profit motive. How come these companies are making so much money on a product that's essentially free? What would Twitter look like if you paid a subscription for it? What would Facebook look like if you had to pay a subscription for it? It would look really, really different because at the moment the algorithms are primed to find out as much information from you as possible in order to target you with the most likely things that you're going to spend money on. So let's say you're doing loads and loads of doom scrolling and you're, you know, frightened about the future. Well, the companies selling you tents and survival kits are going to make a lot of money out of that. So it's in their interest to figure out who's interested in, you know, creating a, a sort of a safe haven in the countryside or whatever things they might want to do. Um, and I don't think that helps the conversation. There's nowhere inside that kind of um, bubble where somebody might break in and go, well, hey, what, there's a, there's a community group meeting to sort of figure out some issues around the climate in the neighborhood. Why don't you join in? It's not offering a solution, it's just selling you stuff. And, and you touched on something there, which is, it's not just that these platforms are changing how we interact online, but they're changing how we are offline as well. Um, you have this bit in the book where you remember in the past, before all of this, you'd be able to sit down and write for four hours uninterrupted. Um, and, and that sort of really changed. So can you describe a bit about how these platforms are changing our behaviours and even our minds offline? Well, I think, I think they're changing our relationship with ourselves because we are expected now to see ourselves as a product, which we have to go out into the world and sell which means all of the creative writing that you're doing isn't being done. I mean, I teach creative writing, so I'm coming from this, from that point, very much from that point of view, um, which is that to, to write something, you know, great and, and to create great art, in a way you need to sort of be slightly fearless and you need to not worry and you need to not think, oh, you know, 200,000 people are gonna read this and they're all gonna shout at me and tell me I'm dreadful or they're gonna try and shame me in some way. And suddenly I find that students are approaching the page with an enormous amount of fear because they know that it matters to their cultural capital. So they have to have some stuff which they can go out into the world and sell that people will look at and say is good, or you know, will be prepared to pay money for or whatever, or give them some, some um, kickback. And at the same time, they also have to sort of perform this version, this, this persona um, of themselves. And I think that's incredibly, it, it's stultifying. It stops people from, being creative, it makes everybody paranoid. So suddenly we're all atomized from each other in order to try and make cash and get somebody to notice us. I don't know if you saw the Paris Hilton documentary recently. I have but my friends have told me to watch it. It's very, very interesting because, you know, she talks about herself at one point and she says, oh, I'm just a cartoon version of myself. And there's a sort of sense that there's a very stunted personality there who can't quite figure out why she's so miserable and lonely who spent her life building up an empire of this persona. And mm. actually, when you start to look at how she came of age and all the rest of it, it was incredibly abusive. You know, there were all sorts mm. of dreadful things that happened to her. And she came of age just at that moment when, you know, Instagram and, and 
the internet was really providing people with an opportunity to almost create a career out of being an influencer. Mm. She was one of the first. That's what I was just thinking when you were speaking is in a way she pre she was almost a precursor to the model of a human that all of us are encouraged to be now. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's really messing our mental health. Mm. I think it's yeah. really messing with our mental health. I think it's messing with our health on, a, on mental health on a global scale. Yeah. And we were talking about this just before we started recording, but you know, one of my personal reasons I was so drawn to your book is I had a similar experience writing for the internet. And it's really hard. I had a writing block for about seven months. I just couldn't write because all I could think of was this expectant public. No, really. And because the internet can sort of do things at scale. So, you know, you might be moving along, publishing a few things and few hundred people will see it and then suddenly for whatever reason suddenly it's 10,000 people it's 100,000 people and it's completely out of your control and also that people are suddenly twisting what you've said or that there's a whole load of, of kickback on Twitter because of this that and the other that someone's commented on something else and then it becomes a news story and it's like whoa <laughs> the, 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 the sort of the, that I think is also frightening. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And I also think that's another thing that is also manufactured. So I find quite often that things, so things that have happened online become a news story. You, you know, JK Rowling's been in the news recently. I don't know who else, it's always some, there's somebody being held up as being the pariah or the terrible person or, you know, canceling this person or canceling that person. And I think that quite a lot of that is a real frustration that people on the internet want to see things changing. So they want in real life things to change because they realize that all of this um, tweeting and outraging isn't getting them anywhere. It's not changing anything, nothing changes. You can sort of sit there and be angry at people and then it becomes a news story. But then two minutes later, it'll be Katie Hopkins. Three minutes later, it'll be, it'll be somebody else. You know, these outrages, they're entirely manufactured in order to keep you on the website. So again, we don't get a real sense of what's really going on. I think the news becomes very fractured and difficult to digest. Yeah. And uh, a, a luminary or a hopeful figure throughout the book is the 20th century French thinker uh, Simone Weil. 
Um, so can you explain a bit who she is and why she was such an important figure for you in writing this book? Yeah, she's, I think she's amazing. She's, I think Susan Sontag talks about her and says that she's inspiring and annoying in equal measure. And I think, <laughs> I think that's probably true. She was a kind of mystic. She was, she was religious, but she wasn't really sure about religion. She was a philosopher, but she also insisted that she went off and worked in the, in the factories in France, along with all of the, the poor people that she felt that she was a real socialist. Um, and she died at very young. I mean, she, she was only in her early thirties when she died of tuberculosis, which she picked up, you know, by not taking care of herself properly. Um, and she also studied with Simone de Beauvoir. I think it's really interesting that um, mm. when she met Simone de Beauvoir, she said it's quite clear that she's never been hungry, mm -hmm. which I thought was a really interesting, shady thing to say. But her thinking on attention is really the thing I'm interested in. And then I think uh, Iris Murdoch picks up on it a bit later in a book called The Sovereignty of Good. And really the argument is that it's attention is the way that we kind of learn. It's the way that we are able to digest what's happening around us. And it's, it's how we choose, it's what we choose to look at. Now, if the internet has been programmed to sort of deliberately hijack our attention, then we're not choosing anything. And I think that it's affecting our learning, it's affecting our sort of moral compass. And I think Simone Vale kind of explains quite clearly to me, certainly as a teacher, because I'm really trying to get people to pay attention in the classroom in a particular way, what attention means, perhaps in, a, in an education setting, but also in a kind of personal setting. What does it mean to really pay attention to something? What's it, what does it feel like what's, cognitively, what's happening inside my head? So I, I look to her for, for sort of, um, to describe that for me, because I felt that she really nails it. She pins it down really well. Um, and to give our listeners a bit of a flavour of what she thought, um, would you be able to read a portion of your book where you quote her? Yes, I will. Above all, our thoughts should be empty, waiting, not seeking anything, but ready to receive in its naked truth the object which is to penetrate it. All wrong translations, all absurdities and geometry problems, all clumsiness of style and all faulty connection of ideas, all such things are due to the fact that thought has been seized upon some idea too hastily and thus being prematurely blocked is not open to the truth. And I think what she means in that um, extract is that in order to really think about something, we've got to sort of cast aside our our ego really and our preconceptions. You, if you come to something fresh and actually really try and look at it and think, well, what does this mean? And I suppose I tried to do that with, with technology or at least with the internet. I tried to think, okay, what does this actually mean? I tried to step back from it a bit and meditate on it, but meditate on it in an active way. She's not really talking about something passive like mindfulness meditation. She's asking you to engage your whole self in that um, and that's certainly something that we try to do in writing classes or in any kind of art practice classes is to try and get the students to really look at what they're trying to do if you were asking somebody to make a drawing or a painting you really want them to be able to see the object from so many different kinds of angles and that takes a lot of looking and the same thing I think with with writing um, and you mentioned writing classes there, and that's interesting because Simone was also taught philosophy of science. Um, so as a teacher, you write about, in the book, you know, meeting some students who work in tech, or just the experience of teaching. Um, how do you feel technology has affected how they see the world? The students? Mm. 
I think because, well, the students I teach at Birkbeck are quite diverse in their age ranges, so mm -hmm. it's different for different people. So at the moment, the interesting thing is obviously that we're teaching all online at the moment and, you know, the disparate capacity of the people. So some of the students really don't have much. They're finding the technology harder than others. Some of them are much more able to handle it. So there's definitely a kind of discrepancy and, and, and a kind of, you know, some of them have more money and more access to technology, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an interesting thing to think about too. But I'm not sure it replaces the moment of physical being in the room. So the thing I'm finding really frustrating about running classrooms online is that I can't actually look somebody in the eye who I know is about to speak. And I can't generate a discussion quite in the same kind of way because everybody has to speak in turn. So it's, it makes everything much more sort of mannered in a way. It's quite interesting because normally in a discussion, we would sit and, and think about something and there would be a natural flow to the conversation. And as the teacher, I'm just making sure that the quiet person has said something maybe, and somebody who's been itching to say something is being brought into the conversation and steering sometimes the discussion so that we don't repeat ourselves. Um, and I miss that. I think that's, that's a shame. That's, you know, obviously it, internet makes it possible to still carry on learning, but it's a shame not to have the face-to-face -face reality of other people in the room. There's something quite magic about just being in a room with other people and thinking about something quite hard. There's an interesting exchange of thought and ideas. And at any given point in a writing class, we might be thinking about philosophy or psychology or history, or I don't know, any of these things can come into the discussion depending on what we're looking at. Yeah, it is interesting. I think lockdown has definitely, as you said, made people realise that no amount of digital connection can substitute for just being, you know, physically present with someone and, and being able to touch and hug them, um, which, you know, you write does bring a sense of security and safety and happiness in people. So do you see us maybe coming out of this, whenever that might be, renegotiating our relationship to technology and social media? Where do you think we go from here? Yeah, no, I really hope so. I really, really do. I think that it's one of those things that maybe that lockdown is, is good. It's very, very clarifying this, this situation, I think. And I think that the struggling populism, which is, I think, now struggling, I really do, is just proven to be the shadow show that it was. And that actually what we need is um, a very different relationship with ourselves and with the people who govern us and the kinds of governments that we might want. And I think it's really interesting what has happened, Facebook has banned QAnon, for example, a couple, only a couple of weeks ago. And you're like, okay, so there's been this batshit conspiracy theory spread on the internet for two years and you've done nothing about it until 10 minutes before the election, which you think Trump might lose. And you know that the Congress and Senate is gonna start coming down on you quite hard. So you're gonna maneuver yourself into a position where it looks like you've done something. I mean, I think the, the, the corporate malpractice at Facebook particularly is very bad, just in terms of the way that they've ignored so many warnings about the way in which their uh, platform spreads disinformation and, and hate and blah 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 they don't care they care they care about who pays for the advertising and the information that they can get out of us I think and that seems really clear so yeah I think we really need a concerted effort to regulate I don't think the internet's bad I don't I think it's an amazing thing but I think that it has been hijacked perhaps by two things by by a profit motive which is out of slightly out of control um and i also think it's been i think there are people who understand how they can manipulate uh certain matters certain issues i mean companies like cambridge analytica are very interesting mm. they've promised to be able to go in and 
pause enough information from the internet about us and then sell it to people who want to change our behavior. And they think that that's, they know they can prove that they can do that. I don't know why we're not more frightened of that. I think we should be very scared of the fact that there are people out there selling those services. Mm. Um, so that's, that's for me the tension that we're in at the minute. We're in this very clarifying place where it suddenly seems quite obvious that the internet is sort of, it's not a safe place. Mm. And kind of extending from that then, what, what does give you hope? And I think people are realizing, I think that there are lots mm. of small grassroots organizations springing up all over the show, countering digital hate. There's um, the um, Joy Buluwami's work in, uh, you know, the AI and facial recognition software and so on. Um, and there's a lot of noise, I think. The, and just the, the sheer monopoly of it. I think even people at Google accept that it needs to be broken up because there isn't any, you know, we can't innovate anymore when we only have these big monopolies making products. There's no, there's no incentive to innovate. And I think that's what's ground to a halt. Innovation stopped. So how can we how can we use this amazing technology to fix things and make things better? That's what I want to know. Thanks so much, Julia, for a really interesting conversation. Um, Medical Attention is out now with Peninsula Press. Thank you. And that's all from us. Thanks for joining us this week on the Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Next week, we'll have our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim, on judging the Booker Prize. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.